Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their own staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day in the capital is Richard Weir. Richard is the founder and managing director of Interfacio, a specialist global recruitment service for pro audio and media technology. Uh, Richard, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subjects of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID nineteen situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. Um, but just to what extent has it affected you and your operations at Interfacio? Well, in actual fact, quite quite significantly, um, Interfacio predominantly serves technology manufacturers who service the media and entertainment technology business. And a significant part of what we do is working with client companies and brands who serve the live entertainment sector. So manufacturers of sound, lighting, uh, and related equipment for for shows, theater, and concerts. As you can quite imagine, um, that, that market, that sector, was probably one of the first to switch off, uh, pretty much the light switched off overnight. Um, and it will be one of the last sectors to switch back on again. Um, the, the, the whole live entertainment sector is, is tremendously impacted by, by COVID. Um, millions of workers in the space, uh, even just in the UK, uh, there's been quite a lot of um, visibility recently on some of the, the campaigning events around We Make Events, the Light It Red days that have happened in the capital we're trying very hard to continue um, servicing our client base and, and more importantly, our candidate base around the world. Uh, many people work directly or indirectly in that supply chain of live events. Uh, so it's particularly pertinent. Um, and, and a lot of what we're doing now is helping and supporting individuals who are either worried or already um, not working due, due to the closure of that sector. The worrying thing about that industry is the fact that even when, say, we fast forward one or two years and hopefully by then COVID-19 is no longer an issue because we have a working vaccine, the anxiety that will have come about as a result of this and the time it will take for consumer confidence to return in that industry, people to venture out in large groups again, that is going to take some time yet, isn't it? It is. um, And there's, there's two concerns about that, I think. One is, yes, people's reticence to get back into public spaces. I think the, the great consolation, and we saw this a bit actually back in the financial recession of 2008, 9, 10, uh, one, of the, one of the sectors that ironically didn't get hugely impacted at the time was, was live events and concerts. Um, and, and what that tells you is that you know, human, human beings and, and our desire for um, engagement and entertainment and connection with something really important at an emotional level which is often music or theater, is, is very much innate in us. And people will go back as soon as they can to intimate or larger venues for entertainment. 
the so, so that's that's a positive. But yes, it's a long time until we can see the, the norm coming back in terms of festivals and concerts on the scale that they need to exist to be economically viable and sustainable. The other concern, which is almost more fundamental and, and for us as a, as a recruitment and search business is particularly pertinent. The talent that is in those markets, a lot of which is freelance, um, whether it's lighting techs or sound, sound mixers, sound engineers, um, roadies, riggers, caterers, security people, a lot of them are freelance. And it's very hard for them to sustain and survive with literally no work, with, with the lights switched off in their industry. Mm. And, and many of them will be forced to go off and find other things to do to, to, to find their own livelihood. And, and then it'll be hard to switch those um, services and those expertise and that talent back on again quickly. It's certainly going to be a challenging time for the industry. That certainly is uh, for sure over the year, the next few months, even when it is allowed to return. Um, reflecting just on the, the last few months, um, however, Richard, um, we are trying to find some positive in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us. So is there anything positive that you can take from this in that perhaps this experience of crisis management has maybe taught you something in your leadership capacity? Yes, I think very much. And, and we, we actually ran a survey early on in uh, around May time um, to the whole of our, our industry and client base. So it was a global survey, not in the UK, um, asking asking about um, how they were being affected and what their outlook was and what their actions that they were taking, including staff training and support, um, possibly in addition to what they might otherwise have done. But one of the questions towards the end was, was what is this most like for you as a business leader or, or, or a manager? Mm. And, and a lot of people came back and said, it, it's surprisingly like the time that I started up in business, that I started in a new job. So that kind of startup mentality introduces a, a, almost a sort of heightened sense of um, drive and creativity. Um, perhaps it's adrenaline fueled, perhaps it's it's fueled by the, the stress and the anxiety of, of, of what's been going on. But I think as a business owner and a business leader, we, we've been encouraged to look right back to the roots of our business and to look at our team and how we can uh, support them, how we can encourage them to, to develop themselves and, and, and get the best of their own capability and performance. Uh, we spent the first few weeks and months looking at how do we continue to engage with our market and our customers when there is literally no business to be done? Mm. I mean, you can imagine recruitment in, in any market in the last few months has been very, very quiet. In our market, it's been, it's been non-existent and will be for some time. But interestingly, as we started to come back, we sort of contained the initial shock of, of, of the problem. And luckily, as, as, a, as a business that's got a good history and we've had some very good successful growth years, we're in a position to hopefully um, – weather the storm as best we can. As we've come back and we started to bring staff back from the furlough scheme, which was you know essential for us and, and many other businesses, what we're seeing is our, our individual team members almost coming back with a fresh sense of uh, focus and energy and need to be extremely e efficient, but also creative and, and kind of embracing the, the challenge of making a business work, but also embracing the opportunity to engage at a higher level with, with our candidates or our clients. And that's a very sort of positive um, 
connecting force, I mm. think, which, which, which is very encouraging to see. It is good that people have really stood up and been counted during this time. And as you say, leaders have really sort of channeled that entrepreneurial spirit and have stepped up as beacons of not just inspiration and motivation for their staff, but also reassurance as well during this time that despite all of the uncertainty and all of the worry, we are going to keep working and things are going to be absolutely fine for as long as we can make them be that way. Um, just in terms of that approaching it from that point of view, just how has it been managing your own sort of mental health during this period, as well as that of the staff that work around you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I, there have been, you know, ups and downs, but I, but I think for me, for me as a owner of a small business and, and the founder of that business some time ago now, it was 18 years ago, Interfacio started, um, there's been plenty to, to, to occupy my time. Um, mm. Sometimes looking back, it felt like I was working extremely hard, a bit like a hamster in a wheel. And, and, and you look back and you go, I'm not quite sure what I was achieving. Um, but, you know, we were, we were looking very hard in the early days, uh, as I said, content and engagement. Uh, then we turned our, our, our attention to engaging and supporting and, and, and trying to nurture as best we can our team. Um, Interface, who has two directors, shareholders, the other, in fact, is, is my wife, Isabel, who started as a client of the company. Um, she wasn't involved at the beginning, but but we met through the industry that we work in. Um, she's one of our other delivering consultants on the recruitment side. Interestingly, she's been inspired through this to, to turn our attention a little bit towards supporting programs that can help teams and individuals, not just direct recruitment services. But certainly, I suppose my activity changed to be much more uh, tactical and, and sort of at the coalface of, of the day-to-day uh, marketing and content uh, initiation, mm-hmm. whereas before, I was probably focused more on managing the business and, and more of the sort of fiscal and administrative aspects of, of being a managing director, um, as well as being a, a recruitment uh, consultant. So, so, so my activity has changed a little bit, but I think my own... Um, dare I say, it, you know, mental health has, has been relatively protected by the fact that I've been able to keep busy. I think mm. for other members of our team and our, and our company who were furloughed from April until the end of June and then have been coming back gradually on the flexible furlough scheme since then, it, it's been quite challenging. And, and I, I know at least two of our team came back to work after three months and said, I don't, I don't quite know how I feel about this. It feels like I'm coming back to work for the first time. I'm starting a new job. Now, I've almost forgotten what, what working is like. So you have to be very, I think, sensitive to that in terms of the individuals in the team. And of course, everyone's different. So people have their own individual experiences as well as their own personal stories of, of things that have been happening outside of mm. work. So, so it, it's, um, it, it's been challenging, but I suppose also uh, inspiring and interesting because these are things that we haven't really had to think about so hard previously. It is a whole new challenge. You're absolutely right. And uh, just going back to sort of what you said uh, before about how over the years um, your sort of focus in running the business has changed to sort of different elements of the uh, the company. Um, it might seem like a little bit of a mean question, this, but if you could go back to um, the time when you were getting into Fasio up and running, is there anything that you would do differently armed with the experience that you have now? Golly, uh, that's a, a tricky question on the spot. Um, interestingly, I, I got into the recruitment 
business, having never worked as a recruiter before. Mm. I, my career before was in sales and marketing and general management. So I started very much from first principles and, and almost wanting to design and engineer a recruitment service for a very specialist industry that wasn't itself used to using corporate uh, blue chip recruitment or high street executive search services. Um, so a glib answer is, you know, I, I, I do differently the things that it took me six or seven years to learn, which, which some people who start a business know before they start. Um, I, I think the, the premise of what we do has not really changed. You know, we're very much about um, engaging with a market that we understand and providing a service that we can really add particular value outside of just the recruitment mechanics, but about having real insight and strategic understanding of our customers. But the biggest single thing and the reason we do what we do and why we're, we're, we're driven to do it is that we're looking to help individuals progress their own careers. So talking to people, understanding who they are, what makes them tick, and helping them find their next right opportunity. And that sort of career counseling piece has always been at the center of what we do, but also why we do it. And honestly, although technology's changed in 18 years, when we started the business, Facebook didn't exist, LinkedIn didn't exist. You know, it was a very different process mechanically. The fundamental principles of it's a very human process you know, recruitment is, is very much about people. It's quite commercial, um, but it's also about helping people find the right ways to, to design and, and direct their own careers and their own journey. And it's about making sure that culturally, individuals and companies fit together. That Those are the two basic principles, and that hasn't changed and won't change. And um, just for those younger generations of listeners that might be tuning into this, who may be a little bit downbeat about the current situation, the impact on the economy and on their employment prospects, these are the next generation of entrepreneurs in the UK. So what is your message to them to really get them on the road to success during this time? Well, I think it, 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 in principle, it's the same message as it would be otherwise, but it's, it's ask questions, try things, gain experience, what you do today won't necessarily block what you end up doing in 15 years or even three years. Uh, whatever you do, do it well, do it properly, do it with enthusiasm and learn. Remember to ask questions. People are always happy to, to, to educate and support and encourage. And, and, and I, we, we do a lot of work interacting with young people either at school or university or postgrad level. And, and we see this all the time, you know, enthusiasm and interest. And, and a, a desire to gain experience is so valuable. Um, try things out. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't the right thing to do, but, but don't stop trying and don't stop asking questions. This will bounce back. When it bounces back, the, the, the world, the economy, the sectors, including our sector, will be as busy as ever, and there will be opportunities out there. It, it's tough at the moment, and I, and I feel particularly for those just starting out in their studies, uh, we see a lot of coverage at the moment about universities and how hard that is. Um, hopefully, you know, young people are resilient like like, like everyone. Human nature is, is resilient and, and they will get through this. And in another six, nine, 12 months, hopefully we'll be able to see you know, a bit more light at the end of the tunnel. 
Hopefully so. And um, it is um, great that you mentioned the L word there, Richard, learning, because what the Interfacio story has also told her this morning is that leadership itself is a constant process of learning. Whether we're young, whether we're old, whatever role we're in, we never stop. It's a constant process of development and improvement. And people would do very, very well to uh, remember that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, (laughs) at every stage in life. And thinking about the future now, having reflected on the past, I do want to talk about that just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I'm conscious that we are short of time. Um, we know that over yeah. the course of the uh, the next uh, year or so, we're going to have to keep adjusting to COVID-19, the impact of the uh, the outbreak, until there is hopefully a working vaccine or a cure for the virus. But during this quite challenging period, what is it at Interfacio that you're really hoping to achieve? And where do you see yourselves being this time in 12 months? Well, I think I think we continue to continue to do what we do. Obviously, the, the nature of recruiting at any level has changed slightly. There's a lot of remote uh, recruitment and interviewing, onboarding. Um, we haven't yet personally been involved in a situation where someone's been offered a job without any actual face-to-face meeting, but I dare say that'll start to happen. So we've got to adapt our processes, and we already work with clients and candidates who are often thousands of miles apart. Um, more fundamentally, though, I think one of the things we're going to see in, in the labor market in general, and particularly our industry and specialist technology or B2B sectors, is the, the move and, and the look towards um, temporary or contract engagement. So, so extending the concept of interim almost almost to another level so that certain roles, whether it be business delivery roles or engineering or product development, are looked at possibly by employers where they might be more open to hiring on a contract basis for short, medium-term uh, project delivery. And we are certainly looking to address that and service that demand, uh, which will be a new um, a new element of our business. And I think it will naturally be a, a key part of uh, the employment uh, um, market and ecosystem over the next 6, 12, 18 months. Certainly going to be an interesting time for sure. And just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto the programme, Richard, to hear your views this morning, I think it would be wonderful at some point in the next year to just catch up and have you back on our show just to see how things are coming along, not just at Interfacio, but also industry-wide. And we can also reassess at that point in time just how far the UK has come as a country since then and what's happening in the global market. Well, that would be a real pleasure, Scott. I, I, I'm looking forward to it already, and I hope that we'll have a, a great story to tell about how the, particularly the live events business has worked through and come back and, and starting to recover. I certainly hope so, Richard. And likewise, it's been a real pleasure to have you on our programme today. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company. And most importantly, until we do speak um, again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Thank you. You too, Scott. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure to welcome Richard Weir, founder and managing director of Interfacio, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three 
three England skippers to have secured the ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a brief period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable and mental health concerns. That interview is coming up shortly. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand 
what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god Charlie, you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment; that was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. 
Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel 
comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the 
Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, 
what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.